0: We have been working through this book of the Bible called Hebrews and we are really coming now to the end of the really meaty part in chapters 9 and 10. This is the part if you've been over the last few weeks you know that a lot of what we've talked about has been grace, it's been the cross, it's been what Jesus has done for us, what He has accomplished on our behalf and all that has happened to purchase for us a relationship with God, to take away our sin, to enable us to be qualified to stand in the presence of God. Now, what's going to happen in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, is the whole focus of the letter shifts. And that theme that has been going right through the letter so far, Jesus is better than this, he's better than that, he's better, 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 is finished, and the author now shifts into a section where he focuses much more on what we are to do how we are to live, what we are to say, how we are to think, how we are to behave. And this is a point at which a lot of people get tripped up because we feel like that's difficult to reconcile with what has come before. All of this emphasis on what Jesus has done for us. And you get to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, and all of a sudden there's a whole lot of instructions and there's a whole lot of stuff that we have to do. And in fact, the passage is broken into really three distinct points, which is why I'm up here at this point in the service, because rather than preaching one long continuous message today, I'm going to preach three mini-messages, because there's three ideas here that really stand alone. And each of them begin with the words, let us, hey, hence the let us, that's right let us let us let now some of you i know you'll email me and tell me that i'm cheap and cheesy and theatrical and you will have a good point actually but uh in in so doing you will reinforce the idea that at least you've remembered something from this morning you know retention rates actually go up by about fifty percent when you introduce some sort of visual element. so i'm not above pulling a lettuce out when i have to all right (laughs) if it means you remember what i say that's fine with me so let us let us let us i know some of you have different translations and that might be worded Slightly differently, I'm preaching from the TNIV, and in my world there are three distinct ideas here, each one starting with let us. Now, let me say something in general here first about the let us, the let us passages of scripture, the let because we often, when we get into this stuff, leave behind everything that comes before. And what happens is we start saying, let us do this, and now let us do that, and let us behave ourselves, let us keep these instructions, and we start leaving behind all that Jesus has already done for us. It's difficult to reconcile. Some of you feel like there haven't been enough lettuces recently, that there's been so much grace, so much the cross, so much Jesus has done it all for us, that where is the let us do this? Some of you are wondering how to reconcile the let us passages with all this stuff about grace. So I want to give you just just up front the, the best way that I've found to reconcile these ideas, reconcile what Christ has done for us with what God asks us to do in our lives for Him. And it's five simple words that I found incredibly helpful, and they are this, become what you already are. takes a bit of getting your mind around, it's a paradox, but this is the essence of ethics. This is the essence of Christian living, that we are called to become in practice what we've already been made in reality God has made us holy now he calls us to be holy to become holy and practice to become in reality what we've been made in actuality we talked last week about how we are holy as followers of Jesus we are perfect we are forgiven and now the argument turns a corner let us therefore become holy let us therefore become perfect in the way that we live we are becoming in fact, what we already have been made. And that means we don't have to leave behind who we already are. It's not that we throw out the cross and we throw out grace and now it's all just living by some moralistic code. The foundation of how we're to live as Christians is built on the reality that you already are holy. You already are perfect. You've already been made forgiven and now our lives are a process of outworking that. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look at these let us passages, these let us ideas. And hopefully that will help us keep in view the cross, keep in view everything that's been accomplished for us. Now, if you've got your Bibles open there in Hebrews 10, in verse 19, here is a little refresher, okay? It's a good test for you, self-test time. Some of these ideas in the first three verses, what the author does is he just does a recap of a lot of stuff that he has presented over the past few chapters. Hopefully, as we read this, some of it will trigger stuff in your mind. This is a good test as to whether you've been paying attention, whether any of this has sunk in. See if some of this stuff rings any bells with you. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, so remember this is the Day of Atonement, the idea that now you and I are able to enter into The very presence of God, the place that only the high priest could enter in the old system only once a year, only under the strictest of conditions. We now have full and unrestricted access to the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. This is another prominent idea that it is the blood of Christ, His death that has purchased our life, His blood that has made it possible for our blood not to be shed, but for us to have this access, to have this relationship. By the blood of jesus verse 20 by a new and living way so not the old way not the way of sacrifice and temple and torah or law but now a new way that circumvents all of that and is simply through allegiance to jesus one step one hit we're done by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body here is a wonderful metaphor Picturing that curtain, you remember we talked about the tabernacle? We're having two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, separated by a curtain. Now the author says, that's kind of like Christ's body. His body is that curtain. Not that it separates us from the presence of God anymore, but it is that through which we enter the holy place. We enter through the body of Christ, as it were, because He is our sacrifice. He is the way for us to get in. He's like the curtain that we, that we go through to get into the holy place so there's this powerful metaphor back to the tabernacle again and verse 21 and since we have a great high priest over the house of god hopefully by now this priest idea is becoming a little clearer that jesus brokers the relationship between you and god he stands in the gap between you and the father he mediates he, he creates atonement at with the father all of these ideas are everything that he has already covered and then we get to this first let us okay and it is this let us read verse 22 let us draw near to god with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water all right so here it is you ready first let us it is let us draw near there it is this is let us draw near You might have picked up in these verses some references back again to the Day of Atonement. Our hearts sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You remember one of the things the priest did in that ceremony on the Day of Atonement was he went into the inner room of the tabernacle and sprinkled the vestments of the tabernacle with the blood of these bulls and goats to make them ceremonially clean, to cleanse them from the pollution of sin. And now the author says, so it is with you, that your heart has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Your heart has been sprinkled with that blood, not the blood of bulls and goats anymore, but the blood of Jesus himself, the perfect sacrifice. It's made you clean, not on the outside, but on the inside. Not only that, our bodies have been washed with pure water. It's, a, it's again, an illusion back always. The author of Hebrews is thinking of pinning things back to the old system. The body washed with pure water is one of the things the priest would do. Before he entered into all of these ceremonies, he'd bathe his whole body in water. Actually, several times through the day. This was an outward, external cleaning, but now our bodies have been washed with pure water. And most likely, that's a reference to Christian baptism, which accompanies the changing of our heart. So our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Our bodies, through the waters of baptism, are washed clean. Not to make us clean on the outside, but to signify and to seal that transformation that occurs on the inside. The changing of a life, the orienting of a life toward God. Now that those things have happened, we are able to draw near. And for us now this is no longer a case of going to a physical location. It's no longer a case of entering a particular place. It is the reality that you and I can enter into a dynamic relationship with God, with Father, Son and Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you had told this to a Jew living in the old system, that you and I would be able to sit here this morning and sit anywhere at any time and have a personal relationship with God. We throw those words around like they mean nothing, but if you'd said to them, yes, I'm going to have a personal relationship, the presence of God living in my heart, I will be able to commune and talk with Him at any time in a greater and more intimate way than even Aaron the high priest, you would probably have found that they would either have stoned you for blasphemy or they would have turned green with envy at the very thought that you could have such intimate communion with Yahweh. The creator God, the living God, the God who spoke the universe into existence. It would have been incomprehensible to them, this drawing near that you and I now enjoy. And the tragedy is that we so often become blasé. I think if an ancient Jew saw a lot of Christians today, the way in which we conduct ourselves with God, they would wonder how it is that we could have this unbelievable access and yet squander it like it meant nothing to us. Take it for granted and become so blasé and so routine in our life. Don't you find that? I find that a lot in my life, that things become routine. We get in a rut with our spiritual walk. We pray the same prayers over and over, the same grace before dinner every night. You know that one? The same words that we tend to pray in the car on the way to work every morning. Just the lines that we roll out, the clichés that just get old and after a while take no mental effort to actually recite. We find ourselves going back to the same passages of scripture over and over again, taking the same words on our lips and it just after a while becomes devoid of much meaning at all. It loses freshness. It becomes stale. Some of you here are feeling this morning like your relationship with God when you really think about it and own up to it has gone pretty stale it's just lost life it's just lost vitality maybe over the years maybe just recently maybe it's just been this week but as you sit here this morning your communion with the Father with Father Son and Spirit is just not where it should be and you're not drawing near this is why the author says let us draw near with a sincere heart. not not in fakiness not in uh, an artificial kind of way but with sincerity and that means The inclination of your heart is always going to be towards routine, towards staleness, dryness, dustiness, and boringness in your relationship with God. Satan loves nothing more than to routinize your spirituality. And this is why, as believers, we have to be constantly pushing in the other direction, fighting that tendency. We will drift if we're not careful. We have to be pushing back all the time, finding ways to keep it fresh. Commit yourself that you won't just say the same grace every night before dinner. You won't just roll out the same cliches, that you will use different words. This is what the psalmist meant when he said, sing to the Lord a new song. He didn't just mean write a new melody and have some new lyrics. He, He meant keep it fresh. Keep it real, if you were a homie. You know, keep it vital. And we just so often—I mean, this would be a good example in church on Sunday morning—that worship songs. And I'm not talking to to you in particular, but you know how it is that in worship, so often we can just find ourselves—it's just sort of yeah, mouth the words, Lord, reign in me. You know, the one that's classic, like that is that song, "Over the Mountains and the Sea." uh, Your—I could sing of your love forever. You know, the verse—it's so funny to look around and watch everybody when we sing that. Oh, I feel like dancing. (laughs) It's foolishness, I know. It's like, you don't feel like dancing at all, man. You feel like lunch is what you feel like. And we just, you know, blah, 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 blah. And our hearts are somewhere else. Our minds are somewhere else. And friends, it's really worth thinking about the words you sing. We're going to go and have another time of worship in just a minute with the band. And I would encourage you to really think through these words on the screen. You know, just think of that last song we sang, Lord, Reign in me. We all mouthed it. How many of us mean it? I heard once of a lady that used to sing that old hymn, I surrender all, and whenever she came to the chorus, she would sing, I surrender some. (laughs) And to be honest, it's probably more real than a lot of us that, that would mouth those words, I surrender all, and not really mean what we're saying. Sing those words from the heart, if they are actually a reflection of what is going on in your heart. Press in towards sincerity, draw near to God. Keep it fresh. This is the first lettuce. I'd like to pray because some of you this morning are going to relate more than one to to one of these ideas more than others as we go through these lettuces. They're quite distinct, as I say. So I'm going to pray right now for some of you that are in this category that need today to draw near to God, that need to find freshness, that need to find life, and need to find vitality again, connecting with the God who created you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, and I pray for myself because, Lord, I know this is such a temptation in my own heart that we just lose that freshness. We know this is a temptation, Lord. We get in a rut. We get a stale relationship with you. It's like a dry, old, crusty piece of bread, and we don't want that, Lord. We long to draw near. We long to rediscover you. We long to fan the flame that once burned really brightly in our hearts but for whatever reason may have dwindled. Father, I ask particularly for those this morning that feel so far from you that there's a massive chasm, and they don't know how to they don't know how to bridge it. Lord, draw them back again to that assurance that it is as simple as returning to you, the Father, who stands here with your arms open and outstretched. It is not about going through ceremonies. It is not about having to pray particular prayers or say particular words. Lord, you just love to take us back. You don't stand here to condemn. You're not here to judge or keep a scorecard. You simply want us to return to you. You simply want us to draw near to you. Father, as we sing these songs, we may be few in number this morning, but your word says when two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Your, your word says your spirit inhabits the praises of your people. So we ask you, Lord, that you would come and inhabit our praises even now and help us to draw near to you through these, these songs, through this time of worship, with sincerity of heart, and full assurance of the faith that we have within us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who made it possible for us to do this. Amen. Okay, then. Are you hanging on with this crazy order today? Some of you have completely lost your bearings. Turn back to Hebrews 10. And uh, we're going to press into the second Let Us. First one, let us draw near. And then in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. This let us, another one of these, oh, here we go. I thought we could use these for communion afterwards, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Let us hold firm. This is one of the, I think this is an area, we talk about holding firm and holding on to God's promises. It's very easy to drift into cliches, you find this, and and just bumper sticker, cheesy Christian slogans about, you know, hang on to Jesus and just say hallelujah anyway. We talked a little bit about this when we went through Psalm 13, the Psalm of Lament. But again, remember the context into which these words are being written to a group of people who were not just facing vague fears and difficult times, and weren't really satisfied with cheesy, trite clichés. For them, these questions they were facing were questions like, what are you going to do when a Roman legion turns up in your neighborhood and takes the leader of your house church and drags them into prison and seizes your property and kicks you out on the street? These were difficult questions. What are you going to do when your father calls up and says, don't bother coming around for Passover this year because you've brought shame on your family by following this fake Messiah? who is no more than a peasant criminal. It's what are you going to do when you are hurled abuse at in the marketplace and called obscenities that you can't even repeat to anybody, that are so degrading and humiliating. These were the things that the readers of Hebrews were facing, not just vague threats, not just hard times, real concrete difficulties. And though we don't face those kind of difficulties today, I know many of you are facing difficulties of your own, real struggles, real issues, For some of you it's financial, it's right up against it with the bank balance and you can't see how the situation that you've got yourself into is going to work itself out. For some of you it's marriage troubles and right now your marriage is on the rocks and it's difficult times and you don't know whether it's heading for separation or reconciliation, you don't know how the kids are going to survive through this. For some of you it's health problems, some of you it may be the loss of a loved one or you're being thrown into the role of a caregiver. For someone that you know, some of you are dealing with intense physical pain, real problems in a real world, the nitty gritty realities of life. And what we don't need at times like that is just a vague hope. Because so many people today live in the absence of any hope at all. There is such an absence of it in the world. New Zealand has the highest teenage suicide rate in the OECD world. People don't have hope. People are increasingly unsettled by international events, even this week with the police raids around the country, these things tend to have a destabilizing effect on us. And when that's not offset by a real concrete hope, something to actually hold on to, something that can actually make a difference, it just leaves us anchorless, and it leaves us wondering where everything is going to work out. And this is where the author of Hebrews calls us again to hold firm, to hold on. And in order to do that, we need to be familiar with the hope that we have as Christians. How many of you could articulate clearly what the nature of our hope is? We often, again, find ourselves drifting back into default answers. Well, I've got the hope that I go to heaven when I die. Those kind of things. That's fantastic. But what does that mean? And is there any present dimension to that hope? We have, as believers, the present hope that emanates from God's Word. And hope is not an abstract commodity. It's not just a thing that you need to plug into your life when you've got an absence of it. It is the conviction that God is going to be faithful to what He has already said He will do. It is depending on the already spoken, already announced, already declared promises of God that we find in the Scriptures, which mean if we're going to be a people of hope, we need to be a people of God's Word. We need to be anchored in the hope that God has actually given us. It is familiarizing ourselves with those promises contained in the scriptures. The promise that God has said he will never leave us, never forsake us. That's Hebrews chapter 13. We're getting to that one. The promise that God has said no matter what you go through, I'm going to help you to lead you beside still waters make you lie down in green pastures. These kinds of metaphors that speak of that ever-present hope that God gives us, the comfort of the Spirit no matter what's going on. The promise from Romans 8 that there is nothing that can happen that will separate us from the love of God. The promise that though we're crushed down, we're not abandoned. The promise that though we're perplexed, we're not destroyed. The promise that this life is not the final word, that there is something that is greater to come that one day we've talked about how jesus is now sitting down and the next time he stands up it's all metaphor of course but the next time that jesus figuratively stands up will be that day when god finally brings human history to a close wraps all things up and places them under the feet of jesus so that god can finally be all in all when he comes and finally establishes the kingdom on earth in its fullness it's here now in part but then it will be here in fullness and friends we need to soak ourselves in the pictures in scripture that speak of us that speak to us of what that day will be like passages like isaiah 11 passages like revelation 21 and 22 that describe a world will there be no more hunger there'll be no more tears mourning crying and pain the old order of things will be gone the new order of things will be here when heaven and earth finally collide and become one when the kingdom finally descends and is here. Those pictures should pull us forward. Those pictures should give us hope. We need to fight the tendency just to drift into cliches with hope. In a world that is so hopeless, we have far more to offer people than just bumper sticker slogans. We don't want to speak that kind of trite cheesiness into such a needy and broken world. Instead, we can offer the firm hope built on the firm foundation of God's word that God really is at work in this world, that he really is working and intervening in human history, and that a world awaits us, and Paul describes it in Romans 8, as a world in which the the, the present sufferings that we experience are nothing compared to the glories that will one day be revealed. Some of you this morning I know are losing hope, and you're struggling to hold firm, and you feel like your grip is just loosening on this whole faith thing perhaps it's not at the point for you where you're right ready to give it away just yet but you feel like you are slipping from god that you're losing hope that it is fading fast and for you today the words that you need to hear more than anything are hold firm. Today is a day for recommitment and renewal for you to come back and ask God to rekindle again in you that ability to hold on, to go another round, to take another step, to carry on just one more day. Asking God to rekindle that hope within your soul, built not on a whim, not on a vague, not not I hope that maybe this will work out, but the firm hope we have that he who has promised He who has already spoken those promises will be faithful to carry every single one of them out. This is praying the Scriptures, friends. It's saying, God, you have promised this. I stand on your word. I ask you to fulfill these promises now. When it comes from the authority of the Scriptures, friends, there is nothing to be afraid of with asking God to make good on the promises he's made. We don't need to just cower and fear. But we can step forward confidently into the hope that god's given us i'd like to pray for those of you that are really struggling i know there are many and i know some of those things have been articulated i know there are many that you've kept bottled up in your own hearts and there's a good amount of confidentiality and privacy and that's very helpful but i'd like to pray a prayer that just encapsulates the love that the rest of the church and your brothers and sisters in christ have for you our desire that you return to christ that you return to that hope that is so central And that you hold on this morning so let's pray together father we pray for those in our church right now who are struggling we pray for those who are in relationships that are fractured and severed and broken this morning we pray for those who are losing hope that their marriage is going to be okay that their kids are going to be okay that their finances that their career that their hopes and dreams in life are going to be okay. I pray for those who have that feeling this morning like the roof is caving in, that things are just falling down around them and they don't know what to do. Lord, help us not just to offer cliches. Help us not to be a people that just rolls out the cheesy old answers but returns to your word to find there a really firm, a really concrete and a really practical hope that speaks to us of the comfort of your Spirit in these times, not the removal of suffering, not the removal of the storm, but peace right in the middle of it, the presence of your Spirit, the encouragement and the empowerment and the intercessory work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and that future hope that you are making all things new and that one day you will establish your new creation on this earth, that our life, Lord, is just a mist, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our days on this earth are like grass that the wind blows away. It's just a vapor. These years are so short and the struggle and toil and hardship of these fleeting moments are nothing compared to the glories that will one day be revealed. Help us to live with that eternal perspective and I pray for those right in the middle of darkness right now that you would encourage them and strengthen them to hold firm, to hold on to you and allow your spirit to breathe new life into their hearts, into their lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to set up the third let us for you, and then I'm going to ask some uh, people to come and do a little activity up here. Let's just read this next couple of verses, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This, let us, has to do with being the body together, being community. And uh, this week, uh, my research assistant, Anna, managed to go trawling on some blog sites and found there's a lot of people that uh, identify themselves these days as Christians but are not identified with any particular church. And a lot of these people, because they don't have a body, Uh, of christ to fellowship with instead have like a virtual community a virtual church and they blog about their spiritual experiences and i thought it would be helpful these are the voices of people who don't darken the doors of a church like this one but still have a form of spirituality we've got a few of these blog samples and i thought it would be helpful and maybe interesting to read some of these out so those of you who are blog readers there are four of us four of you you want to come up and and you can stand behind the lettuces here and i'll get you to read those out
1: After years of church going, I became frustrated by the way it has become institutionalized. It frustrates me that it has become so rigid and closed to change and fluidity. Jesus gives a radical call to follow him, and the majority of churches have become too comfortable. They have become like clubs, and they have lost the passion. Read Matthew 10 and compare the call of Jesus to his disciples with the way your church operates. Read Romans 12 and tell me where there is a church in the West grappling with that stuff. We've lost the plot. I have become disillusioned with being virtually the only person in a community of faith that wants wants it to be more than a nice safe place to come and feel all warm and fuzzy with my middle class privileged life. Attending church sucked the life from me. I figured it was not healthy for me to continue to go.
2: It's Sunday morning. You're waking up in your nice comfy bed. The house is quiet, the kids are still sleeping, and this is your last morning to sleep in before the Monday morning workday. You have a mountain of clothes to fold and the dishes to do. The last thing you want to do is get up and make yourself presentable enough to go to church. Many of us, if not most, have been there at one point or another. It's not always about being disinterested in worshipping God. It's often about feeling tired or even just about lazy. You might even feel a bit guilty when this happens. Because it's not like church is an all-day event. It's only a couple of hours out of our whole week. Sometimes it's not even about getting up in the morning. For certain people, it's about wanting to avoid a group of people. I'll confess there have been times when we've arrived at church late to find a parking lot full. Rather than parking on the street and walking, we decide to praise God at the coast. Hey, I'm not saying that I'm proud of myself.
3: I haven't been to church in a month. I can see why some people don't go to church. Most of my neighbours don't. And these aren't evil or vile people. They're good folks who love their families and their communities and work hard every day. They're good neighbours to have. For the past month, I've been able to see what the church is really competing against. And while it doesn't sound so great to some people, leisurely reading the paper, drinking coffee and watching Sunday morning Politico chat has been nice. Spending more time with my family has been wonderful. Big breakfasts. No thought of having to be here or there. I guess I should say right up front that I don't think going to church really means much when it comes to most people. I don't think showing up for a service makes you any nicer, any more civil, any more Christian than those who prefer coffee in the art section. In fact, some of the biggest miscreants I've ever met have been good church folks. Considering that, the morning paper looks even more attractive.
4: Growing up in the church can really do a number on you. You definitely get a good look into the terribly flawed model of community in a place that should be a beacon of what community should and can be. After so much time in these kinds of communities, I guess I'm a little cynical about whether it's possible to have healthy community with fellow Christians. I've had to put my own junk on the table on this too. My expectations of what church should look like may be too idealistic. Maybe I'm not ready to face my part in disappointment with church. Community in many churches to me has felt out of my reach. I feel like I keep throwing myself in front of people, their kids, and their cars, trying to get involved in some kind of community. The reasons I can't seem to connect may be complicated beyond what I can even tell. All I know is that I love God. I adore His people. When I go into churches and to visit, all I can think about is how dear the people are. That and how bored or annoyed I am with the service. I know the church is is a flawed place because it's filled with flawed people. So I'm pricked by that verse. I know it's time to go back and I need to keep looking.
0: Thanks, guys. So there is a real trend, and I think New Zealand would exemplify this among Western countries, of Christians that identify themselves as followers of Jesus, but exist independently of the body of Christ. And it's this idea that personal spirituality is about me and God. And that's as far as it goes. The reason that this is so accepted and so legitimated in society is largely because of this individualistic culture that we live in in the West that has just built up over hundreds and hundreds of years, particularly through the Enlightenment, and it has convinced us in every sphere of life that we operate as isolated, autonomous, independent moral agents that exist in uh, distinction from each other. We emphasize our distinction and not our connectedness. Unfortunately, when people become Christians, they don't give that way of thinking up, but just import it into their Christian faith. What that means is we end up with a whole raft of people within the church, and most of us think this way to one degree or other, that understand the Christian faith as a highly individual idea, that it is my personal relationship with God that matters most and that it is a distant second how other people might fit in with that we emphasize personal times of reading the Bible personal prayer times personal worship times my personal intimate communion with God and often that's as far as it goes so people become disillusioned with the church and especially when church can become dull and boring and stuffy and institutional people look at it and say why would you bother why would you bother with that when I can be perfectly happy in my own world I am my own church, in a sense. I'm an island, and I've still got a thriving and healthy relationship with God. Hebrews really cuts right across that idea. And of the entire New Testament, this is really the crux at which this issue is addressed, more than anywhere else. It's not only this verse, but this really brings it to a head, where the author says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching the answer that hebrews really gives to this question of why would you bother with the church is is an unexpected one in some ways but it's the idea of encouraging one another that this is something that spurs each other on let us spur on one another there is no such thing in the new testament as a christian apart from the church it just wasn't entertained people were saved one at a time you make a personal decision to hand your life over to Jesus Christ, but you are immediately saved into a body. You are immediately saved into a family. And there is a collective identity within that that transcends your own individual identity. And in fact, the individual finds their identity partly now constructed by the bigger group to which they belong. They re-understand themselves as, as, as this new identity forged by this great family of which I'm a part, because now my story has been caught up in the story of Jesus and I share the same story as all these other people. I've connected my life to a common narrative, the narrative of the dying and rising of Jesus Christ, who's now my Saviour, who has died for me. He's my King. And I experience through that this connectedness with other people. Christianity at its heart is a communal and collective faith. It is about being the people of God together. What God is in the business of doing right now between Jesus' death and resurrection and His coming again is not just saving isolated, autonomous people. He is building a kingdom. He is building a redemptive community. And He is calling people out of the world to become part of this family that He is building. That is the sense in which we understand ourselves. And so the church, the body of Christ, becomes the primary context in which our faith is supposed to be outworked. It is the context in which we are to grow. It is the context in which we are to be trained and equipped to reach out then beyond ourselves. It is the context in which we are to build deep and lasting relationships with other people who share the same faith as us. It's the context in which we are to serve others and be served by them, to know others and be known by them, to love others and be loved by them. The whole thing is communal, the whole thing is collective. There's a corporate dimension to our faith which is so strong and tragically so lost. contemporary culture it's starting to crack now with the onset of postmodernism which emphasizes far more the community dimension but this western individualism is so rampant in the church and has distorted the picture the new testament gives these letters like the letter to the hebrews were not written to just a bunch of scattered individuals they were written to communities they were written to people and the you you do this you are this you are that is not just you the individual it's you the plural you together are the body of Christ, and one of the ways in which we give visible expression to our common identity is through meeting together, gathering together, in order to encourage one another and spur one another on. That's why these gatherings are so important. Let us sit back and appreciate the irony of talking about this on Labor Day, Labor Weekend, and the weekend of the Rugby Cup final. It's the reality that a lot of people are not here for one reason or another, and I'm really conscious in bringing this kind of challenge that it begins to sound really legalistic and it begins to sound really like you need to be in church every single week unless you've got a, a, a brilliant excuse. Friends, I know the reality is that there are things that come up. I know the reality is that there are times that you're away, that it is not about every single Sunday. It is not about this routine, this legalistic push to live by rules. It is simply the question, what is the regular and consistent pattern of your life? in terms of gathering together with God's people? Is it a tendency toward coming together to worship and fellowship in these times on Sunday? Or is it a tendency towards separateness, towards doing your own thing, being your own person outside of the body of Christ? This was a big issue for these Jewish readers because the crux of the problem for them was that people were starting to drift away from the church. People were starting to drift away from the house meetings. They were going to the synagogue, but they were no longer coming to attend the church. And interestingly, the author doesn't say to them, just make sure if you're going to give up meeting together that you still stay strong in your faith. He says, don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Why does he press this idea of Christian gatherings? Because he realizes that there is a danger in being an isolated Christian, that that can so easily become a halfway house to simply becoming detached, and isolated from Christ. I realize there are many good and godly people that don't belong to the visible body of Christ, but I would argue that it is impossible to mature fully as a Christian, to really become a fully devoted disciple of Christ, outside of the context of the church family. This is the way God's designed it. He's made us communal people. He's given it as part of our relational DNA. He saved us into a people And part of the visible expression of that is a commitment to prioritise meeting together, gathering together. And we do this in part to encourage one another. Your presence here this morning is an encouragement. It should be an encouragement. It should be an encouragement to the people around you. The very fact that you showed up today should encourage your other brothers and sisters. It encourages me. It should encourage you. There should be this mutual fellowship and edification by simple virtue of the fact that we share a commitment to come together as God's people, to worship, to gather around the the word and the sacraments in order to exhibit the identity that we have as the collective people of God. In so doing we are testifying to the great tradition that traces right back to the first century of God's people gathering together weekly on the Lord's Day to break bread together, to listen to teaching of the word, to fellowship with one another. This is something that has been a hallmark of the church down through the ages. It is something that will be central to the life of our church, not just because it's what we think good Christians do, but because it is part of manifesting our identity as the people of God and it's a way in which we can continue to spur one another on. And from this meeting, other meetings spin out, like life groups, an environment where you can be more interactive. You can actually share life together. You can really know others and be known by them with greater proximity than you can on Sunday morning. And let me just give, give a plug for life groups. If you're not yet in one, I'd encourage you to join one. Weekly, bi-weekly, whatever they are, groups of about five to 15 people who meet together. To go deeper than we can on sunday mornings to really get into each other's lives and begin to connect and we've found people that join a life group begin to feel like they belong to the church far more than people that just come along on sunday mornings again i don't say that to condemn you i say that simply because there are many people that say well i don't really feel connected to the church i don't really feel like this is my home yet and the first question back is always have you joined a life group are you in some context where you're meeting with others, connecting with people outside of these situations, because even in a church of this size, it's tough to do it all on Sunday mornings. It just takes a more intimate gathering. If it's not a life group, then find a few people, go along to a men's breakfast or a woman's breakfast, begin to connect, begin to build relationships, and find ways to get to know others and begin to go deeper. Ultimately, that is what anchors you into a body. That is what enables you to spur one another on. So I'd encourage you to prioritize these times. I, I was tempted to just preach the same message five weeks in a row, just to catch everyone that actually comes to shore, because I know we're kind of on a five-week rotation with some people, you know. For some people, regular church attendance has become one in two, or I'll go faithfully, one in three. And I know there are legitimate reasons, but I also know that sometimes it's as simple as the weather. It's as simple as how tired do I feel. It's as simple as what's on TV. And don't give me the excuse of staying home to watch shore on air. And it's as simple as how my, you know, what's coming up in my week, what's going on, and whether I really feel like going or not. And friends, I would just challenge you, it's easy for me to back away at this point and resist the challenge, but I want to preach the whole counsel of God's word and just stand before you here and say, if some of you are in the habit of not meeting together with the body for these kinds of reasons, I want to challenge you in the same way that Otago University challenges you, get over it. And come along and meet with your brothers and sisters and be part of the worship service here. And be here not just to receive, but to give for what you can contribute, for how you can encourage. If you're feeling disconnected, look at how you can connect with other people. Look around after the service for people that might be on the margins, on the fringes, and see what you can do. It's an important part of spurring one another on. And I realize that I'm preaching to the already convinced today, but hey, you can get this CD and you can give it lovingly and anonymously to someone else who maybe needs to hear it. So let me pray for you and particularly for those of you who are in this boat today. Father, I pray for those and perhaps some listening on CD or television right now that are right now not in the habit of meeting together, that are disconnected from your body, the church, and have found an identity apart from your people. Lord, I I pray that what I've said today wouldn't have come across with harshness or condemnation, but simply reflecting the challenge of your word, that these gatherings are not just rituals, they're not just ceremonies. They're meaningful times for us to connect together and there's a reason that your word challenges us not to give these up there's a reason the author of hebrews pinpointed this issue and brought it right full front and center to the attention of the people he was writing to lord we see the danger in giving up these times and we want to renew our commitment i pray for those that may be just shaking a little in their commitment to these services that you would encourage them and motivate them not just to please me not just to keep people in the church happy but in order that they would lovingly and cheerfully spur one another on through meeting together, through being part of environments here at Shore where they can really get involved, know other people, use their spiritual gifts and meaningful service in your body, and be spurred on toward holiness in your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.